And for those of you with uh, kids you are, uh, that are utilizing children's ministry, you are more than welcome to uh, take them back there now. And for those of you whose kids are staying in the service with us again, we love having children in the service worshiping with us and learning alongside of us. Uh, we have been for some time now going through our Confession of Faith in London confession of faith, and we've began to kind of disperse them in the pew in front of you. Uh, they're, they're not in, in front of everyone quite yet, but if you're wanting to kind of look along uh, as I read, um, then you can utilize that. And I'm going to read out of the version that you find in your pew, but we are looking at paragraph 8 of chapter 8 of the confession, which relates to Christ as mediator, Christ as mediator. And so paragraph 8 says this, it says, to all those, and this is on page 25 in case you're using that version of the confession, to all those for whom Christ has obtained eternal redemption, he certainly and effectually applies and imparts it. He intercedes for them, he unites them to himself by his spirit and reveals to them in and by his word the mystery of salvation. He persuades them to believe and obey and governs their hearts by his word and spirit. He overcomes all their enemies by his almighty power and wisdom using methods and ways that are perfectly consistent with his wonderful and unsearchable governance. All these things are by free and absolute grace apart from any condition for obtaining it that is foreseen in them. And so that is paragraph 8 of the London Confession of Faith. But if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the Gospel of Mark chapter 6. The Gospel of Mark chapter 6. We are looking this morning at the death of John the Baptist. And so we're going to look beginning at verse 14, and I'm going to read all the way through to verse 31, kind of the return, you know, kind of picks up with where we left off last week uh, as it relates to the, the 12 apostles being sent. And so I'm, I'm including in what I'm reading this morning, their return to Christ and their report that they give to Christ. And so allow me to read and then I'll pray and we'll work through this text together. But John Mark, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, he penned these words, it says, now King Herod heard of him, heard of Jesus, for his name had become well known. And he said, John the Baptist is risen from the dead, and therefore these powers are at work in him. Others said, it's Elijah. And others said, it's the prophet or like one of the prophets. But when Herod heard, he said, this is John whom I've beheaded. He's been raised from the dead. For Herod himself had sent and laid hold of John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, for he had married her. Because John had said to Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Therefore, Herodias held it against him and wanted to kill him, but she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a just and holy man, and he protected him. And when he heard him, he did many things and heard him gladly. Then an opportune day came 
when Herod on his birthday gave a feast for his nobles, the high officers and the chief men of Galilee, and when Herodias' daughter herself came in and danced and pleased Herod and those who sat with him, the king said to the girl, ask me whatever you want and I'll give it to you. He also swore to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. So she went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. Immediately she came in with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was exceedingly sorry, yet because of the oaths, because of those who sat with him, he did not want to refuse her. Immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded his head be brought. And when he went and beheaded, and he went and beheaded him in prison, brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to the mother. When his disciples heard of it, that's John the Baptist's disciples, they came and took away his corpse and laid him in a tomb. Okay. Now, meanwhile, this is going on. Then the apostles gathered to Jesus and told him all things, both what they had done and what they had taught. And he said to them, Come aside by yourselves to a deserted place and rest a while. For there were many coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. Why don't we go to the Lord in prayer? God, we thank you for your Holy Spirit-inspired word. These are precious words because in reading them, we hear from you. And in We want to hear from you this morning, God. So we ask, Spirit, the same Spirit that inspired this word, we ask now that you would help us. Help us to see, help us to be changed, forever changed as a result of spending time in your holy word. And we love you and we're grateful. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. For those of you that remember our journey through the book of Esther last year, you'll sense some familiarity with this particular passage of Scripture. This this passage, it it feels similar, right? In, In some ways, the events recorded here in Mark mirrors the events, some of the events that we see in the book of Esther, right? First, we kind of have this sort of petty and tyrannical ruler. Uh, Herod Antipas is his name, who was a a tetrarch, which is a ruler, was a ruler of one of the four provinces in the Roman Empire. So this wasn't Herod the Great that we see earlier at the the birth of Christ, the incarnation of Christ. This wasn't Herod the Great. This is his son. This, uh, so, so Herod the Great is this guy's father, and upon his father's death, upon Herod the Great's death, his kingdom was divided amongst some of the brothers. Okay, This particular Herod, Herod Antipas, uh, he ruled over Galilee. So he wasn't a king in the sense that we would maybe think about Herod the Great or in the sense that we would even think about kings in general. However, according to church tradition, he he liked to be called king, and Mark's account actually calls him king in this particular gospel. So so Herod Antipas, he is a as a tetrarch, um, wasn't nearly as powerful as as 
King Xerxes or King Ahasuerus, if you're familiar with those two names, depending on uh, where you're reading about the uh, that period of time in the book of Esther, right? But he, he's just as, as petty, uh, he's, he's just as wicked, and, and I think that his wickedness didn't rise to the level of the wickedness of King Xerxes only because he didn't have the means or he didn't have the influence that King Xerxes wielded. Now, we open our text this morning, and we see right out of the gate that there are rumors uh, or op- opinions, if you will, that are circling around about the identity of Jesus uh, because, according to our text, his name, quote, became well known. That's the second part of verse 14. Now, this could be connected to the initial ministry of the apostles that we, we looked at last week, right? This could be why Mark inserts this account of John the Baptist's imprisonment and then his execution, kind of in the middle of his telling of this, this mini great commission, this trial great commission, if you will. In other words, what may seem like something like an interruption at first glance may be more intentional than we realize, right? It can also mean that the arrest and the execution of John the Baptist, right, uh, and, and the, 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 you begin to shift um, the, the focus off of John the Baptist and increasingly on to Jesus. You know, John's kind of getting out of the way, but what we know for sure is that news about Jesus is spreading, it's spreading at this point in our passage. He's increasing in notoriety, and people have opinions about who he is. And, and these are all uh, high opinions of Jesus. These are high opinions. Jesus is thought of highly uh, as it relates to, to the rumors that are circling, at least uh, around the people that Herod Antipas is associated with. But even though they're high opinions, they're all wrong opinions, right? They're all wrong opinions about who Jesus is. Uh, some of the rumor circling is that Jesus is Elijah. And other people believe that Jesus is a prophet, like one of the Old Testament prophets. But Herod believes that Jesus is John the Baptist resurrected from the dead and that he's come back to haunt him for what he's done, for, for what John the Baptist did, or for what Herod did to John the Baptist. One commentator put it like this, quote, the account begins with King Herod's paranoia that John, whom he had imprisoned and whom he'd killed, has returned in Jesus to haunt him. Right? In, in, in these ancient days, there was this belief that resurrections were signs of impending judgment. And with Herod's guilty conscience, he certainly believed that he was about to be judged. And it seems that these alternative opinions about who Jesus is, that he isn't John the Baptist resurrected, but rather Elijah or rather another prophet like those in the Old Testament that that was more uh, about comforting Herod's guilty conscience than it was about anything else. But it, it's here that we see John Mark in chapter 6 of his gospel. He, he picks up on something that he only briefly mentions 
in chapter 1. And look with me here in in chapter 1, because this is the only mention we see of John the Baptist's kind of abrupt disappearance. Verses 14 and 15 of Mark chapter 1, if you remember back, says, Now after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, quote, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. Verse 14, just that beginning part there, that's that's all the details we get initially about this disappearance of this pretty prominent figure up until verse 14, verse 15 there. Now, after John was put in prison, right? Maybe there was an assumption that people would have, you know, certainly known about that. You know, and, and John certainly was kind of a, a major, a popular figure. I'll talk more about that in just a second. But, but Mark says that in verse 14, he moves on. But also in those two verses there, verses 14 and 15, we see this close association between Jesus and John the Baptist. We see a close association between their ministries. And our text this morning picks up on giving those details that Mark doesn't spend time on in Mark chapter 1. And it also, our passage further demonstrates and further solidifies this close and continued association between uh, John the Baptist and Jesus, between their ministries. Right? John the Baptist played uh, a significant part in preparing the way for the ministry of Jesus. In other words, the ministry of John the Baptist, it terminates, it finds its conclusion or its fulfillment in the person and ministry of Jesus Christ. Right? John the Baptist was the, the last of the Old Testament prophets, if you will. And it was John the Baptist who testified, quote, there comes one after me who's mightier than I, whose sandal strap I'm not worthy to stoop down and loose. I indeed baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. It was John the Baptist that testified, quote, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John chapter 1, verse 29. John's primary objective was to prepare the way for Christ by preaching repentance and then declaring Christ as the Messiah. And like an Old Testament prophet, John the Baptist, he proclaimed the necessity of repenting of particular sins. He wasn't vague. And this is where John the Baptist got into trouble. In fact, we get more insight into why John was imprisoned in Luke's account, Luke chapter 3, verses 18 to 20, and certainly this harmonizes with where we are in Mark chapter 6, but Luke writes it this way. He says, and with many other exhortations, speaking of the preaching ministry of John, he preached to the people, but Herod the Tetrarch being rebuked, rebuked by him concerning Herodias, his brother Philip's, okay, known as Herod Philip, right? his brother Philip's wife, and for, and pay attention to this, all the evils which Herod had done also added this above all that he shut John up in prison. Right, so, so John's specific in his preaching ministry, right, and even Herod is not off limits in John's 
preaching ministry, right? John spoke specifically to Herod about his needing to repent of this this sin. And, And because John the Baptist meddled, right, because he sought to apply the word of God to Herod's life, because he loved Herod's soul, right, he was in prison. Mark says that Herod imprisoned him, quote, for the sake of Herodias. You see that in verse 17. So, so Herod had John the Baptist imprisoned for the sake of his wife Herodias, yet that's, that's not enough for Herodias, right? She wants John the Baptist dead, right? In some ways, Herodias seems to be the tyrant behind the tyrant, if you will, right? Herod Antipas and Herodias, they had Uh, what was known commonly as an unlawful marriage. Both of them divorced their spouses and they married one another. And and Herodias was actually Herod's niece. She was his niece and in, in addition to being his brother's wife. Interestingly enough, the second London Confession of Faith, our Confession of Faith, footnotes Mark chapter 6 verse 18 when it talks about unlawful marriages being um, a type of unlawful marriage being an incestuous un, uh, marriage. Right. But Herodias, along with her daughter, probably Philip's daughter, moved in with Herod, right? They're living unlawfully, and Herodias thinks that silencing John the Baptist by murdering him will allow them maybe to send a message to to the other zealots and and perhaps pretend or, or live in this fantasy world that they're in a legitimate marriage, right? In her eyes especially, they are above the message that John the Baptist is preaching. They are, in other words, outside of God's jurisdiction, right? They want God to stay in his lane. What, what does God have to do with the political sphere, right? And maybe John's message applies to others, but certainly John's message doesn't apply to them. At least that's their way of thinking, right? So Herodias wants John the Baptist dead, but Herod doesn't. And at this stage, he's only imprisoned John, Right? And, and we see, if you're familiar with this story at all, we see this kind of cognitive dis- dissonance here, the, these, these inconsistent thoughts Herod had about John the Baptist. First, he, he shuts John up in prison for the sake of, because of John speaking to this bogus marriage. But as it relates to executing him, he doesn't want to do that because he, according to Mark, quote, feared John knowing that he was a just and holy man, verse 20. Now, he doesn't fear John as it relates to John's power, but there is something in John's preaching that perhaps smells true, right? That perhaps feels true to Herod. And in John's life, his character harmonizes with the message that he's heralding, right? He's a holy and just man, However, we also see, again, just as we're, if we're trying to get into the head so far as, as we can with someone who's been long dead, but just, you know, utilizing our text, but we also see that Herod fears backlash from the, from the multitude. Matthew's account gives that to us. Matthew chapter 14, verse 5, it says, although he, speaking of Herod, wanted to put him to death, he feared the multitude because they counted him as a prophet. 
Right? Again, we see complicated thoughts. We see complicated thoughts. To further complicate it as it relates to trying to understand Herod's disposition toward John, there were things that Herod heard John gladly about. The second part of verse 20 says, And when he, Herod, heard him regarding many things, he heard him gladly. Some translations say, And when he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, yet he heard him gladly. Right, that's interesting considering John the Baptist is imprisoned for the things that he taught. Right? But I highlight it to show how inconsistent Herod was as it related to John the Baptist. He was divided. He was, he was torn. Now, remember I said a moment ago, right, this scene we have in our text in some, way, some ways feels like it's out of the book of Esther, right? Just as Xerxes in the book of Esther threw himself this tremendous party where very important and influential people attended, so we have a party that Herod throws for himself, seemingly a, a birthday party, right? And at this birthday party, the daughter of Herodias, and the historian Josephus identifies her as Salome, she dances for Herod as a gift and for the enjoyment of of his guest. And just as we noted the wicked and perverse ways of Xerxes' kingdom, when we went through Esther, we know that these sorts of customs, this type of dancing, was not this innocent sort of dancing in this strange and wicked home. It was not something that a godly person would, uh, it's not the sort of birthday party a godly person would attend, okay? We'll put it like that. R.C. Sproul makes this comment. Where would this girl, speaking of the daughter, learn about immodesty but from her mother, the adulterer? Right? So she certainly wasn't innocent. She was modeling. She was behaving according to the example that was set for her in her home. Right? The party itself would have been worthy of being rebuked by John the Baptist. Now, Herod is so pleased with this dancing that he makes a rash vow, and it's made using what was a common expression, one that we find King Xerxes say to Esther three times in the book of Esther. Herod says, ask me whatever you want, and I'll give it to you. Whatever you ask me, I'll give you up to half of my kingdom. And this is the moment that Herodias has waited for, right? She sees her opportunity to further manipulate Herod Antipas toward her desired goal, and she uses her daughter as a pawn to get what she wants, right? The daughter who seems just as comfortable with a brutal murder as she does with her wicked entertainment. She comes on behalf of her mother, and she demands the head of John the Baptist on a platter, and she wants it swiftly. She wants it immediately, right? Herodias is, is finished with waiting. She wants the death of John the Baptist now. Now, Herod, we see there, right? He, he's grieved by this request, isn't he? Perhaps because of his fear of backlash, perhaps because he was intrigued at John the Baptist's message, decided, even, even though he was not heeding John the Baptist's call to repent, right? We see this, again, this duplicity, this double-mindedness. To make this even stranger, right, in Herod's thinking, 
the sin of going back on this rash vow, going back on his word that he gave, in his mind, is a worse sin than the sin of murder, right? Particularly murdering one of God's holy and just men, right? Perhaps going back on this oath looks bad for him in front of his prestigious guests, right? It kind of boils down maybe to pride, But because he gave an oath and because he didn't want to go back on his word in front of his important guest, he commits the sin, uh, the worst sin of murder. In doing so, this rash oath, it concluded a plot that was long ago planned in the same way that Xerxes' rash oath ultimately revealed, right, a plot to kill Mordecai and to exterminate all the, the Jewish people. So the plot's revealed, John the Baptist will die, He's beheaded, right? Such a, such a brutal way to die. And perhaps it was in the view of Herodias, a literal cutting off the head of the snake. You know, she saw maybe John the Baptist that way, right? Maybe the way that John the Baptist is executed is just as arbitrary as Herod's rules and customs. But John's head's cut off. It's brought on a platter to this wicked daughter who in turn gives the plate, the platter to her wicked mother. Right? This, is a, this is a brutal story, isn't it? Um, this is an R-rated story. It's dark. It's very dark. A very dark historical account re- relating to just what we could perhaps call the first, the first of the martyrs, right? Um, one of the first of the, the, the martyrs. It, in fact, the, the only decency in this whole story is the disciples of John the Baptist coming and getting his body in order to give a proper burial to this great prophet. Now, <clears throat> is, there anything, is there anything here for us? And of course, the answer is that absolutely. And if you're taking notes, I'd encourage you to jot this down. The Word of God is magnified in the midst of persecution, not silenced. Right? The Word of God is magnified in the midst of persecution, not silenced. Right? And, and after working through this account, I thought we needed some good news. <clears throat> but truly, this is pervasive in our text this morning. This is pervasive. Right? The question is, do we see it? Do we have eyes to see it? But first, verse 14, now King Herod heard of him, Jesus, for his name had become well known, right? Maybe Herodias thought her murdering John the Baptist would silence people, right? It did not silence people. But, but think about that phrase, his name became well known, right? If, if John the Baptist paved the way for the coming of Christ, he then got out of the way so, so not to obscure the person in the ministry, of Jesus, right? Think about where we are in Mark when John the Baptist comes on the scene. There had been hundreds of years of silence from God. No prophets, no prophets, no one saying, thus saith the Lord for hundreds of years. And then this figure comes out, right? The voice out of the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Isaiah 40, verse 3, John one twenty-three, And people <clears throat> are drawn 
to this prophet. Again, this one who is speaking on behalf of God, this person who is God's mouthpiece after years and years of silence. Right? The very fact that John the Baptist had the ear of Herod Antipas shows just how known and just how popular and sought after he was. If you remember, people would actually go out into the wilderness to hear this guy who ate bugs, right? But he wasn't the Messiah, was he? He wasn't the Messiah. He wasn't the headliner, right? As great as John was, he was the guy pointing to the headliner, right? Pointing toward Christ Jesus. And now in our text, John's gone, and instead of his message going with him to the grave, we see the culmination of that message. We see the Christ. We see the Son of the living God, and His name at this point in Mark is becoming well known. And as we'll see later in Mark, Jesus eventually as well stands before Herod Antipas. But the message of John the Baptist did not end because he was killed, right? On the contrary, it became amplified. It became amplified. As the saying by Tertullian, one of the church fathers goes, the blood of the martyrs is the what? The seed of the church. And the reason that's the case is because the testimony of martyrs, the testimony we see here of John the Baptist was of one who would also die, but not stay dead. He wouldn't stay dead. His testimony was of the God-man who would die and descend and bodily and eternally and gloriously resurrect, right? That is an enduring word. It's an enduring word. The word of God can't be silenced because the word of God came out of the grave, right? That's good news for us, isn't it? Now, also think about how this comes right before the bookend of this mini commission that we looked at last week, right? This is why I wanted to include kind of the return Uh, of the apostles here when I first read our text a moment ago, right? John the Baptist is dead, but the kingdom of God doesn't miss a beat. It doesn't miss a beat. In fact, the apostles have replaced the prophets. They went from one prophet to 12 apostles. From the vantage point of eternity, that's pretty good, isn't it? That's pretty good. Right, think about the places even in the world right now where the gospel of God is flourishing. Right, if we were to make a list, we might perhaps be surprised by the countries that show up on that list. And as things in Western civilization decay morally, right, is it not an opportunity for the gospel of God to b- burn brighter? Right? Yes, it will cost us, but we have the gospel of peace And the gospel of peace, it burns bright in a dark, decaying, angry, hostile society. So that's the first thing we should see, and we should be encouraged by what we find here. Secondly, good opinions, but wrong opinions about Jesus are not enough. Good opinions, but wrong opinions about Jesus are not good enough. I listened to a podcast this week, and the guest on the podcast was... um, very vaguely spiritual, and he was syncretistic 
in his worldview. He, he kind of melded all the religions of the world together. And as the interviewer would talk with him about Jesus, this guest expressed very, uh, uh, a very high opinion of Jesus and of what he called the red-letter words of the Bible. Um, but to this guest... Jesus was a good man, right? He was a moral teacher, and his teaching could be summed up by doing good, whatever you know, vague definition we have for good, uh, but doing good to others, right? There's some vague, un undefined uh, def uh, concept of love that this person had and peace and of the tranquil life. And as I listened to the interview, I remember the opinion swirling around about Jesus in our text, after the execution of John the Baptist. But look back at that second part, verses 14 and 15, right? John the Baptist is risen from the dead, and therefore these powers are at work in him, right? Others said it's Elijah. Others said it's the prophet or like one of the prophets. Now, certainly, like I said, these opinions are probably connected to comforting Herod in the midst of his fear that judgment was coming down on him for his executing of a just and holy man. But what's interesting about these opinions is that and I noted this a moment ago, they were all good opinions. You know, they were all good opinions. Elijah was held in high esteem. The prophets of the Old Testament were held in high esteem, right? These, the opinion these peoples had, they, they, they weren't negative opinions about Jesus. They were just wrong. They were just wrong. And a good but wrong opinion about who Jesus is does not make one a Christian. It does not make one a Christian, right? If they were paying, if, if this crowd during the, the time of Jesus, if they were paying more attention to the words of John the Baptist, they would have known that Jesus is the Lamb of God, right? If they were paying more attention to the ministry of the apostles, they would have known that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah, and this is critical, right? And if you're here this morning and you don't confess Christ as truly man and truly God, if you don't confess Christ as the sufficient Savior who died and was buried for your sins and resurrected bodily and eternally, then you're not confessing the Christ of Scripture. And that has eternal ramifications. It has eternal ramifications because Herod was right about this one thing. A judgment's coming, right? A judgment's coming on the deeds of man. And we've seen that in our journey through Mark's so far, this alluding to judgment, a coming judgment. Now, the confession of the church, capital C church, is that Jesus of Nazareth is the eternal God, right? He's your maker, and he's the only way. He's the way, the truth, the life, and no one comes to the Father. No one is made right. No one has peace with God except those who come in repentance and faith through Christ Jesus. So good opinions are not enough. Third, a guilty conscience is not necessarily the same thing as godly sorrow. A guilty conscience is not the same thing, necessarily the same thing <clears throat> as godly sorrow. Look and consider again verse 16. But when Herod heard, he said, This is John whom I beheaded. He has been raised from the dead. He's been raised from the dead. Herod knew, again, he knew his actions, what he had done to this image bearer and this prophet and this holy and just man. He knew that it was wrong. And I would argue that this is the case, not just because the law of God was known, but ultimately because the law of God is written on the heart of man, 
Right? The Apostle Paul puts it this way in Romans chapter 2, verses 13 to 16. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them in the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. Right, Herod here, he had a guilty conscience because he murdered John. He murdered John. But a guilty conscience is not enough, is it? It's not enough. There must be repentance. There must be a turning from sin and at the same time a trusting, a resting in the person and work of Christ alone is the basis of your salvation. Right? If we were to make a case study out of Herod and we were to do, just follow along with this you know, thought experiment about what repentance would have looked like for this man, right? If, if we would have, I think, a public confession about the wrongness of his executing John the Baptist, his making restitution in Galilee for that crime, we would have had his confession of this adulterous and incestuous relationship, this faux marriage, if you will, to Herodias. He would have sent her back to his brother, Philip. All right, we would have had his confession of the wickedness of his life that led to such a sensuous party and dance by Herodias's daughter. All right, we would have a confession as, of Christ as Lord. We would have watched Galilee even perhaps begin to shift due to a righteous Herod, one who knew that he was God's servant, that he was God's deacon. But we see none of that here, right? We see that he's terrified about a potential consequence, right? God's judgment over what he's done. And he surrounded himself with people that will make him feel better about himself. That may be therapeutic, but it's damning. And it's damning. Church, feeling guilty about your sin, while at the same time not repenting of your sin, is worldly sorrow, not godly sorrow. The Apostle Paul, in his second letter to the church of Corinth, wrote this to them because he was encouraged by their repentance, starting in verse 9, going down to verse 11 of 2 Corinthians 7. He says, I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, right? He wasn't trying to hurt their feelings, but I rejoice because your sorrow led to repentance, for you were made sorrow, sorry in a godly manner, that you might suffer lo, uh, loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. For observe this very thing, that you sorrowed in a godly manner. What diligence it produced in you, what clearing of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what vehement desire, what zeal, what vindication. In all things you proved yourselves to be clear in this matter. Right? People can be sorrowful. Right? People can feel guilty for the things that they've done, but that's a far cry from what characterizes godly sorrow. Right? There may be tears and there may be guilt and negative feelings and worldly sorrow, but worldly sorrow still leads to death. It still leads to death. In contrast to that, godly sorrow produces repentance. It isn't self-loathing. It isn't self-centered. It's God centered. And it leads to a salvation without regret, right? Godly sorrow 
is diligent. Godly sorrow is eager to walk in repentance, not slow to walk in repentance. Godly sorrow fears God. It seeks to prove itself. So we must evaluate ourselves this morning as it relates to our sins, the ones that we know about. Right? Are we exhibiting worldly sorrow for the sins that we know and are confessing as sins? Are we exhibiting worldly sorrow like Herod, or are we exhibiting godly sorrow? It's the third thing. And then the fourth and final thing, and, it, and it's connected to this for us, is that we can't be selective in our repentance. Again, for those sins that we know about, we can't say, you know what, I'm going to repent of this sin while holding on and not acknowledging these other things in our lives. Verse 20, Herod feared John, knowing that he was a just and holy man, and he protected him. And when he heard him, he did many things or was perplexed about many things. Again, other translation, yet heard him gladly, heard him gladly. Right? There were some things that Herod, in his twisted thinking, heard John the Baptist gladly about. There were messages that Herod may be approved of. They were, there, there are acceptable messages, and then there, there are unacceptable messages. Or maybe we can talk vaguely about the Word, word of God, and, and we can talk va- vaguely about righteousness, but when we begin to apply the Word of God to our lives specifically, that's where the friction lies, isn't it? Right? We can hide so often, right? And, and, and those in Reformed churches, particularly, I, I see this, and maybe because I'm more familiar with it, but we can hide behind our debating of theology and our knowing a lot of stuff about God's Word, and we can use that as a deflection to submit to God's, to submit to God's Word in our life, to apply God's Word in our lives. And, and so there was this fascination with the very words, the very message that, that John the Baptist was heralding, but there was distance. There was an unwillingness for that to be applied in Herod's life. He rejected that. Right? He rejected repenting of particular sins that John the Baptist called him to repent of. Right? This month, as you know, our, our Table Talk magazine, the, the devotional that we give out, I mentioned it earlier, right, is, is on this theme of commonly tolerated sins, right? Again, we have these categories in some ways of here's unacceptable sins, and then here's the acceptable sins that we pay no attention to in our lives and never repent of, right? Yet from a biblical worldview, right, we must be committed by God's grace to seeing our sins and repenting of both large and small sins, right? If we were to give them those categories, we must strive by His grace to repent of those sins. We're not allowed to treat sin lightly, right? Or to be flippant about it. We're not allowed to ignore our sins. We're not allowed to put off repenting of our sins. We are, according to Scripture, to confess, repent, trust, in Christ alone. And I fear that too often we may see and agree with the Scriptures about our condition, yet be unmoved and unchanged. We look at the Scripture, we evaluate ourselves as it relates to repenting of our particular sins, as it relates to maybe repenting of those sins that have ensnared and entangled us for a while, but we're just too numb, or we're just too callous, or we're too demotivated to repent. And Fran, that is a path that leads to disaster in your life. We often 
talk to our kids about the good path and, and, and the bad path, one, you know, and where which one, you know, where, where those two paths lead, right? You're on the bad path right now. It's mommy and daddy's job to help you get on the good path by God's grace. The, the Lord, through Jeremiah, he reminded the rebellious Israel about this very same thing, the good path, the bad path. He calls it the ancient path. This is what the Lord says through Jeremiah. It says, thus saith the Lord, stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient path where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls. And this morning we're being reminded through the word of God of the good path. And Lord willing, by his grace, may we respond appropriately. So may we be encouraged that the word of God is magnified in the midst of persecution. May we be settled in our hearts this morning about who Christ Jesus is. And may we repent, truly repent of each and every sin the Lord is bringing to our minds this very moment. And may we always do these things resting in Jesus alone for our salvation. Let's go to the Lord in prayer now. God, I thank you for this time that we've had together in your word. Thank you, Lord, that your scripture is clear about matters such as sin and repentance. Your scripture is clear about what a wonderful Savior you are for us in Jesus Christ. Apart from him, God, we would have no hope for reconciliation, for peace. And so may he increasingly be our treasure and our delight. And we rest in him alone for our salvation. It's in his name I pray, Jesus' name I pray, amen.